Welcome to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, where our goal is to help you find health and community through movement. I'm Molly Herford, a writer, coach, and yoga teacher. And I'm Peter Glassford, an endurance coach and kinesiologist. Every week, we're talking to athletes and experts who can help you lead your best active, adventurous life. Whether you're a gravel racer, a marathon runner, or you just got out on your first bike ride yesterday, we're here cheering you on. You can also visit us online at consummateathlete.com for coaching information and training tips, nutrition advice, yoga flows, bike skills, and more. And now, let's get into this week's episode. Hello, Ontario Cycling. I'm Molly Herford, and today I have my friend Anne Guzman on the Ontario Cycling Podcast talking all about women's nutrition for cyclists. So today we're covering not just nutrition for women, but nutrition for women who have big goals in cycling, whether you're a new rider, whether you've been racing for a really long time, we're covering everything from what to eat on a day-to-day basis to what to eat you know, precisely on your ride. And then sort of some of the pitfalls that we can fall into, whether it's you know from fad dieting or it's relative energy deficiency in sport, uh, which is a very common issue for women. So we talk all about sort of our symptoms, what to watch out for, warning signs, and how to avoid you know, getting into trouble with our, with our diets. So, Anne has a long career in sports nutrition, a long career as a cyclist, and she's a fantastic resource. I hope you enjoy this discussion and head over to OntarioCycling.org to find out tons more information. We have a bunch of webinars over there and just lots of fun stuff. All right, without further ado, enjoy this conversation with Anne Guzman. Anne Guzman, welcome to the Ontario Cycling Podcast here. Um, I'm really excited to talk all things nutrition. Uh, Before we get into it, though, why don't you just kind of quickly introduce yourself, explain your background in cycling and how you sort of shifted into the sports nutrition world. Yeah, sure. Um, I used to, well, I got into cycling. I was older. I was 27. So I came from a background of a lot of sports um, and the last one being freestyle wrestling. So it was a really big jump into cycling from a five minute sport. Um, and so I actually got into it through spinning and then all of a sudden I was spinning at gears. So a lot of Ontario people might know that shop and the owner, Kevin was like, Oh, why don't you buy a bike? And next thing you know, I was just knee deep in cycling and fell in love with it. So it became my new, my new sport. And yeah, I didn't stop, um, from there. And I just kept on racing through 2012 and ended up falling in love with the road so I ended up racing on the professional women's road circuit for around six years, like full time. And then through that, I mean, even back in gosh, 2000, like I always loved sports nutrition, but I was managing a health club and I would just help people with their nutrition. And then I went back to school and learned more about nutrition. And I continued just learning on my own as well. and did some sports nutrition certifications over the years with many different careers. Eventually, I opened my own business. So you know, cycling for a female, especially back then, not lucrative. <laughs> so I was obviously doing this on the side and then it really started to grow. And then I just had a moment where I thought, well, this is going really well. Um, you know, cycling, it's not actually um, financially uh, treating me as a career. So I made the jump and yeah, I've had my business, I guess I would say it's probably been full time since 2010. And yeah, so it's great. I love working with endurance athletes. That is who I predominantly work with and especially cyclists. And I also work with triathletes, but it's good because I can relate, right? So I know what it feels like when it's super hot or you're riding for five hours or you're going to race for six days in a row. 
And to me, that's really helpful because relating and understanding that I don't want to eat something bulky during a crit because my tongue is stuck to the top of my mouth and I can't breathe. Like all those things are super important. Uh, and I think great when you understand an athlete that way. So I really yes. enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm doing still. Yeah. I love it. Um, and so, you know, as you're, as you're getting into all of this, did you ever have that point? I've had this in the past um, where you're sort of like, oh, my nutrition is so dialed because it is dialed on the bike. You're like eating and drinking and doing what you're supposed to do on the bike. But the rest of your nutrition is like absolute crap because that was me for like the first, <laughs> I'd say like five years of my athletic career. Yeah. I mean, I've made a lot of mistakes and, you know, that's one of the ways I've learned them. You know, there's always the formal education, but then there's the on the bike. So absolutely. I'd say my bigger mistake was the opposite, was my on bike nutrition. Um, but for sure, at some point, I also realized that uh, I don't think I was eating enough like during the day to day. And even if I mastered my on bike nutrition, I was ending up with empty legs. So then um, even if it wasn't so much the quality, it was the quantity of what I was eating off of the bike that I realized I needed to adjust. So I have no problem admitting that like what I knew a decade ago is so different from what I knew now. What I knew three years ago is so different from what I know now. So you're always learning. And I've made all the mistakes myself. Absolutely. Even when I knew what to do, I've made the mistakes. So that's interesting, too. Yeah, it's funny, the the more people I interview, especially people who balanced like doing sport with being an expert in it, uh, there's a little bit of like, do as I say, not as I do. Um, <laughs> certainly. And I mean, I'm, I'm 100% guilty of that, too, right? Like, it's, it's super hard to actually practice everything that we preach all the time. Absolutely. Um, but I mean, let's, let's just talk about like basic everyday nutrition. Like, why does that matter for our cycling bodies? Yeah, I mean, I guess what I said kind of nailed it home to myself even that if you only think about what you're eating and drinking on the bike, I mean, you could be going into your ride completely depleted of carbohydrates or stored carbohydrates as glycogen. So of course, we have to think about what are we doing during the whole day in order to not only support our cycling, but our health, right? Because a healthy person is a consistent athlete and consistency is what it's really important in sport or any habit for that matter. So yeah, the day-to-day -day is super important because you have to think about not only the macronutrients, so your carbohydrates, your proteins, your fats, um, but you have to think about the quantity of them, the timing of them throughout the day, the quality of them, as we just mentioned. Um, and then also, you know, different scenarios. If you're going to a race, like the availability of them. If you're going your first uh, jaunt over to Europe, why can I eat over there? So yeah, really, it does matter what you're eating over the whole course of the day. And in particular, um, if we think big picture, so you need a certain amount of carbohydrates, right? So we don't have to talk grams or anything because everyone's going to be individual, but knowing what you need, and you do learn that through trial and error, right? If you mm -hmm. look at um, charts, you know, they'll have a range, maybe you need five to eight grams of carbohydrates per kilogram of body weight based on X amount of hours and intensity, but then you'd play around with that and figure out what that looks like for you. Um, same with proteins. So you need, you know, maybe a range of 1.2 to 2 grams per kilogram of body weight, but then you think about you're going to spread that out throughout the whole day. And what's that going to look like for you? Are you a vegetarian? Are you not a vegetarian, right? That might look very different. And then fat that might change depending on your um, 
training load, how much are you training? Maybe sometimes you need more, you need, you need less. And then again, the quality, right? Are you getting your essential fats and where are you getting them from? Depends what type of food you like to eat. But all of those things like, are your health, right? Your health is a big deal. So we can't just think about carbohydrates to perform because we could get those all from jujubes and juice, right? And there, <laughs> you know, so we have to think about quality. Now, maybe you eat jujubes on the bike. No problem. There's a time and a place for, for everything, right? Um, but yeah, it's about the quality off the bike to support your health so that when you're on the bike, then you can have your um, more easily accessible carbohydrates, for example, so that you can optimize your on-bike nutrition. But you're supporting yourself with your day-to-day -day nutrition. Mm -hmm. You said two things that really stood out to me. The first was just listing carbs, fat, and protein. Like These are the macronutrients. We need all three of these. This is what a healthy diet looks like all three are good. Not like none are, none are scary or bad. Yeah. <laughs> so very important. Uh, and then I really like your point about the protein spread out throughout the day, because I'd say like the standard Canadian diet is that like big whack of protein at dinner. And, you know, you maybe have like a bowl of cereal for breakfast and like a sandwich for lunch. And, you know, most of your protein ends up timed way at the end of the day instead of spread throughout. Yeah, and that's that is an ideal world that is spread throughout. And when I think about protein, I think the number one goal is your daily amount. Then you can think, okay, now if I want to really be ideal, let me spread it out. And then if I mm -hmm. really want to get more particular, let me make sure that I have peri nutrition or around my training. So within five hours of training. And then really ideal is it's it's after training with carbohydrates. But yeah, it's nice to, to have the big picture, which is how much per day, like that is your number one goal. And then you can kind of refine that. And you make a great point about not being afraid of any macronutrients, because we know that there's a really big fear of carbohydrates in um, a lot of athletic communities. But since we're talking about cycling, I see it a lot in not only younger riders, but even masters riders. And this fear that if I eat carbohydrates, I'm going to gain weight. But that, you know, we know that's not true. If you eat carbohydrates, you're going to be fueled for the work and you're going to be able to work harder, right? And that's going to accumulate. And then that's going to help you bump up your performance. And then you're going to reach your goals. So it really all feeds into itself versus that restriction of carbohydrates, which can take us down a really negative rabbit hole physically and mentally. Mm -hmm. um, and although we talk macros, I just want to make sure it's important that the quality is where you're going to get your micronutrients, right? So we need to think about the vitamins, the minerals, the antioxidants, and iron, and all of these other very important uh, micronutrients and mm -hmm. minerals. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's sort of important to say, like, obviously, like, that sounds like basic everyday nutrition. And it doesn't matter if you're training three hours a week or 20 hours a week or 30 hours a week. Like, that's basic stuff that everyone can be thinking about. Um, but I'd also like to speak to, I mean, can we just kind of like pause and say, if you ride a bike, you're a cyclist. If you have any goals in cycling, you are an athlete and a cyclist. <laughs> mm -hmm, absolutely. Yeah. And for sure, you know, if you're training 20, 25 hours a week, it's very different than three or four. And the demands nutritionally would, would be very different. But you still, A, want that healthy foundation of good nutrition and then depending on the duration and intensity of your training would really, you know, answer what you do or don't need while riding. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's almost, it's funny because I think people kind of view it in two ways. One is like, if you're that three hour a week person, you're like, Oh, like none of this applies to me because I'm like, not really an athlete. And then if you're like the 30 hour person, you're like whole host of new rules apply to me because I'm like this. And you're like, well, no, like let's start with the basic good nutrition stuff. And then we can sort of start piling on like the specifics, but the basics for everyone are are the basics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's true. You need that foundation. And you make a good point. Like a lot of times people want the cherry on top, but it's like everyone needs the foundation, right? It's the simple example of of building a house or think about, um, you know, building a big pile of sand and that's your good foundation over your whole off season. And if you don't have that, and then you suddenly start throwing in this intensity and pulling piles from the sand, like you don't have anything to pull from and then you're very depleted. So yeah, I think the house or the sand, it's a good analogy. You need the foundation before you're thinking about this supplement or that supplement or this fad diet, right? Which is going to give you that maybe or maybe not that little 1% or the cherry on top, but the foundation is way more powerful. Exactly. Yeah. Like I love whenever you see any of the, the like fad stuff or supplements or whatever, that's going to make you like 1% or 5% or whatever, faster or better or leaner or whatever. And you're like, but if I if I take a hundred of these supplements, is that actually going to make me a hundred percent better, faster, stronger? And you're like, when you logic it like that, you're like, of course that's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure that that logic comes that easily, though. You know, because there is a lot of hope that seems to go into supplements. And, Definitely, and it's it's this notion that it's easy. And I think that's where when you see the claim, um, you just like, oh, I, I need to try that. And I need to try that. And I think there is a mentality that they're going to accumulate. And I'm not saying there's no place for any supplements, right? Um, mm-hmm. Some some are great, uh, regardless of your nutrition, like, let's say creatine, right? That's a great supplement. Ideally, you would have great nutrition as well. But then if you think about at the very elite level, everyone's razor fit. And then maybe that 1% is going to help make that difference, Mm -hmm. right? You've got every box checked off and now it's like, okay, I'm going to try A and B. If it fits in with the type of event, the risk is low. You've gone through the, you know, reasons why you might try a supplement um, and it makes sense and it's going to improve your performance and is legal. Um, And that's a different scenario. Very key. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) But you would hope um, that a lot of the athletes at that level do have that great foundation and they probably often do to be able to have trained so hard for so long to get to that level. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, so basically to kind of sum this up before we get into like what to be eating and drinking on the bike or how to think about eating and drinking on the bike, it's really just the first thing you should be dialing in is sort of your everyday nutrition basics. And, you know, I think that is like hard for a lot of people and that's where people like you and, you know, other other dietitians and nutritionists can come in and help people like figure out how to tweak their diet that they're currently eating to make it just, just that little bit better. That's better for them. And like with their current constraints and their, their things that they love and, you know, with their schedule and all of that stuff. Yeah, for sure. Perfect. Okay. But since we are cyclists, we are riding and, you know, as this is coming out, the weather is starting to warm up, which means we, you know, 
are sweating a whole lot more. All of us in, in Canada are like, whoa, suddenly it's like, you know, 15 degrees. It's getting a little steamy here. Uh, <laughs> you know, I was out for a ride this weekend and it was, yeah, like 16 degrees. And I was like, I'm so sweaty. It's so hot. I don't know how to handle this. <laughs> you know, it happens so fast. It happens like this every year. We're freezing one week and then it's too hot like the next week. It's like, exactly, exactly. So let's, let's talk on bike nutrition as we're heading into this this summer um best practices for eating and drinking on the bike in general what are sort of your like go-to rules rules of thumb yeah so let's preface with what we just said you have that good foundation right so you're not trying to save yourself with the on bike nutrition because you haven't yes. eaten all day so then we get on the bike so it would go first by time so if you're just going out for an hour assuming you have good daily nutrition uh, you should be fine with water. If it is absolutely sweltering um, and you are even a heavy sweater or salt sweater, you might still want some electrolytes in your in your bottle. But for the most part, you should be good with water and you shouldn't even necessarily need to eat anything on an hour ride. Now, if you are saving yourself and you haven't eaten well that day, that's the context where that might change, right? So you know it, and you know that, you know what, I have not eaten enough. I'm going to bring a banana or some gels. And I'm actually going to have a sports drink because I haven't eaten. So that's not an ideal scenario, but we know it happens. So there's that ideal scenario with that timing. You'd probably just need water. Once you get over that 90 minutes and you're doing harder training, so you're actually going for a training ride, that's when most of the like on-bike sports nutrition guidelines would kick in. So again, there's a range here, right? If you're riding easier for 90 minutes plus, maybe you're down in the 30, 40 grams of carbohydrates per hour. Maybe you're just drinking most of that, or maybe you're having water with an electrolyte tablet and you're eating that. As your training gets more intense and longer, then that carbohydrate on the bike would increase. And it's easier for most people to get that from both uh, a drink and food. So let's say you're up to 70, 80 grams per hour. You're going for a two and a half, three hour ride, a group ride. Um, and you're thinking, okay, if my bottle has 20 to 30 grams and then my food has the rest, but this is something you should think about and plan. So you're mm -hmm. not just going to throw like a smorgasbord in your back pocket so that they weigh 10 pounds and then get home and you didn't even eat half of it. Right. So think Didn't about done that. <laughs> yeah. So have I, especially at a camp and you're like, what is in your pockets? Like, well, yep. you know, bring a couple extra gels in case someone exactly. else needs them too, or just in case. But if you think and you lay it out and if you need to um, bring a Ziploc with some extra powder, you're going to stop on the group ride and then you can refill your bottle with water, add that powder, get your 30 grams. So a typical gel, let's say, for example, is 30 grams. So if you have 30 grams in your bottle, you have 30 grams in a gel. And let's say you figure it out because this is trial and error. So eating on the bike does not go by body weight, right? It's your, it's your intestine's ability to absorb those carbohydrates over an hour. So you need some trial and error. And that's what I do with athletes. So I'll be like, okay, oh, you have this three-hour ride. Let's test this out. Why don't you bring, um, or you can bring extra, but why don't we try like 60 grams an hour and see how you feel at the end? Are you fizzling in that last half hour or are you feeling amazing? And now in the context that we also know what you did the day before and the day of for daily nutrition. And then if they kind of fell apart, then we can try upping it. And now there's always the thing to think about, like, are you at a shape? 
or did you bonk? Right. And knowing that difference is important. So I love that question. I love that question so much. And it's funny, we say the same thing about cramping too, right? Like, are you cramping because you just went too hard or is it like an electrolyte or carbohydrate issue? Yeah. So a lot of the time we try to like blame nutrition very quickly when actually it's, it's just, no, we've, we've overextended ourselves fitness wise. Yeah. And you see that in the early season more often when you're just not used to that intensity of the racing um, or you just haven't been doing the training and then you jump into some intense group ride. So that carbohydrate intake per hour, I mean, it can go up to 110 grams per hour. Like that's, you know, it can go quite high. And the one thing I would say to an athlete is if you've not been eating any carbohydrates on the bike, don't jump to 110 grams per hour because for, for a lot of people, like your, your gut needs some training. So imagine there's these little doors on your intestines and they're letting carbohydrates in. If they're not used to that, um, that can cause some bloating and GI distress. So maybe ramp it up a little bit, um, practice with some bigger pre-ride carbohydrate meals so that you get used to that. And then slowly with training, you can just add in a little more, a little more. And then again, write down in your training journal. And if you don't have one, start one. Like, what did I feel like? Oh, right. That day I did this. Um, I know I have good foundational nutrition. So now I can isolate what I'm doing on the ride. And then you figure it out for you. And even if the person beside you is half your size, twice your size, don't look at them for your on-bike nutrition. You have to do what works for you because they may be fitter than you. You might be fitter than them, right? If you're going, if I'm going riding with someone, I'm not in great shape right now. I just ride aerobically and they're in stellar shape. So I could be riding significantly harder than them beside them. We're probably possibly going to eat differently but we're going to eat differently regardless. But that's another factor, right? The fitness level. Mm -hmm. I'm working a lot harder. The intensity is higher for me. I'm going to need more carbohydrates than if it's a really chill ride for them. So you have to think about intensity burns more carbohydrates. Um, and then also duration is going to require them as well. So all those factors to keep in mind. I love it. Yeah. And you're totally right about the the training journal. And I think, again, this is one of those things that we sort of think of like as a pro thing, like, oh, pros keep training journals. Like, I, I don't I don't need to do that. I'm like recreational or like I'm, I'm not there yet. But like everyone should have this. You know, it's you're basically building like a matrix for yourself so that you can see like, OK, today I have, you know, two hours and I have high intensity. Like this is what I figured out is like the sweet spot for my nutrition. So I grab that. I don't have to think about it. I don't need to like be guessing or, you know, second guessing myself. Like, you know. And that's super important as a confidence tool going into a race. Right. Oh, and yes. So by having that written down and not thinking, oh, what did I have that time on that ride that really mimics this race I'm going into? Like, you know, and then you feel confident when you're on the line about what's in your pockets and that you're going to feel strong through the finish line because you've done this so many times. Now, of course, races are super intense, but training should be super intense, too. So you should be able to pretty much mimic a lot of things. And then, of course, things will happen during a race. But that's a different story. But yeah, totally. you make a great point there that anyone, this is important for anyone at any level because it's as important to you in in your ride whether it's the olympics or for you it's the weekend ride like why is you know it's what's important to you right so if that mm -hmm. weekend ride is your olympics then 
it matters to you, right? Why Let's does it honest. matter to you? That's, right? how, that's how some masters approach their group rides. <laughs> so uh, you might end up in your Olympic ride just accidentally. Exactly, right. So, I mean, it matters what's important to you. And then, like, why is it important to you, right? You're going to feel good about mm. yourself. Why do you want to feel good about yourself? You keep asking that, and then you go backwards and think, okay, well, then I better dial in my nutrition because that's going to yeah. help me answer all these whys. Exactly. Yeah. It's just, it's, that's like the free thing you can do. I mean, obviously sports nutrition stuff costs money. I mean, there are like inexpensive ways to do it, but like, yeah, dialing your nutrition is like the free thing that you can do for yourself that isn't paying for a really expensive supplement or, you know, paying for all of this like testing and stuff. Like you can, you can figure this out on your own with just like a little bit of detective work. Absolutely. It takes some effort. <laughs> and it's something you have a lot of control over, right? You can't control the weather. You can't control the pin you go over on the road that gives you a flat. You can line up with so many things under your control as much as you can. And then the, the race starts and, you know, it will be what it will be. But with your nutrition, you do. You have an opportunity to take a lot of control over how you're going to feel on that day. So you make a good point. Yeah. It's free. Oh, I love it. Um, and actually, I wanted to also come back to hydration because that's something we didn't talk about with daily nutrition. But the thing that I've started kind of coming to terms with in the last couple of years is, again, it's not just on the bike. It's being hydrated before you start your ride. Um, because I have definitely the tendency that I'm like a water chugger where like, I get dehydrated and then I drink a ton of water and then I'm dehydrated. And I drink a ton of water. So I've been trying to stabilize it a little more. And my glass of water right here. Um, I think that's made a huge difference is like starting rides where I'm not already a little dehydrated. Yeah. And I think that that's super common. Um, I know I did a podcast with Heather Logan Springer who did her PhD on this. And she mentioned that like a lot of athletes are showing up already dehydrated. So you make a good point. Like you don't just want to nail your on-bike hydration, um, kind of like you don't just want to nail your on-bike nutrition, but then the rest of your day is, you know, very subpar. And we know that being hydrated, I mean, that contributes to your power output, right? So a lot of times athletes need to hear, um, why do I care? Well, will it help me perform? Actually, yeah, it will, right? Your muscles are composed of a lot of water. And as you get dehydrated, your rate of perceived exertion goes up, right? Just think about the volume of water decreasing. Now your heart has to pump faster to get that blood out to all of your muscles because the volume is lower. And for how long can you sustain that increased heart rate? Now you're working harder and, you know, your performance will probably start to, to diminish. So it is super important to go into your um, everyday training hydrated and even just for day-to-day -day energy i mean you won't be as fatigued right being dehydrated can leave you feeling fatigued so yeah ideally as you're saying you're drinking water just throughout the day there's no number of glasses there's no secret number i like to look at just like the color of my urine is it kind of a pale yellow if it's a very mm -hmm. dark dark yellow um if it's like dark yellow brown you're in real trouble but yeah thinking about that some supplements will throw that off so if you're taking B vitamins, your urine will be fluorescent yellow. If you're eating asparagus, if you're eating or drinking beets, there's a percentage of the population that will have pink urine. Um, so I have some knowing... horror stories about that <laughs> at training camps. I bet. Oh my gosh. I do. Too. I remember uh, a few clients being like, um, I have to let you know something. So I yeah, just... I'm dying. <laughs> yeah. But you're going to the washroom regularly. Every two, two and a half hours is no magic number, but 
you know, there's a volume of urine and it's a light color of urine. But And then on the bike, I mean, again, that's individual. I'm a heavy sweater. I'm also a heavy salt sweater. So I do need to drink more. Um, I, I noticed last week there's, um, I think actually Alan Lim has one too, but now there's these at-home sweat test kits. So I'm not sure how accurate they are, but that's super interesting. But what you could do is wear yourself pre and post ride with no clothes on. So Mm -hmm. in private, please, everyone. Um, And then just pay attention to, A, what did you drink, right? And then how much weight did you lose? And then if you're losing over even 1%, but 2% of your body weight, then maybe shift and readjust, drink more, and then start noticing those differences. And for some people, you need to train yourself to drink more on the bike. So think about starting a race. So imagine you're going to start a race and you have two bottles on your bike. But if you drank one half an hour before, you kind of have three because there's one in your stomach, right? So practicing those kind of tactics, like within the last half hour to 45 minutes before a race, just get a bottle in your stomach. If it's a long race, drink some sports drinks. You're kind of like already into it. Um, Yeah. And then the amount again is going to be individual, but typically like if you're drinking 500 mils, your typical sports bottle per hour, um, I used to aim for 750 just because I am such a heavy sweater, but you know, heavy salt sweater, you might know that just by the taste, but if you're eating a lot of salt, you're also going to have saltier sweat. So I do think that's one thing um, that if you think you're having a lot of problems with cramping and you really do think it's because you're a heavy sweater, um, start experimenting with adding a bit more sodium. It's not always the answer to cramping, but for myself, like I ended up needing think 14 to 1500 milligrams of sodium per bottle. So that's a decent amount of sodium. Most sports drinks have 300 to 350. So Mm -hmm. I really noticed that difference for myself and it wasn't cramping. It was that my legs just, um, they just felt better overall. So really Mm -hmm. sometimes it was cramping. So playing around with those things, but like you were saying, you know, if you do have a lot of cramps, it's not always hydration. But what you can do is kind of get on top of your hydration and your electrolyte intake, see if it's still happening, and then maybe start playing around with it a little. If it still doesn't go away, then consider some other factors. There's always Mm -hmm. pickle juice too. You can drink pickle juice. This is legit. So if you like it. You know what? It's delicious. I'm just saying. You like it? Oh my God. I love it. Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah. It's a really weird thing. I've actually started like drinking it any hot day. Like I'll actually come in and like take a couple sips and you know what it's also just like it's so salty and so refreshing when you've just been drinking like sweet stuff and like eating sweet stuff it's almost like a palate cleanser yeah weird weird aside there but I love it so interesting yeah that's good so some people definitely enjoy that and then thinking about um even replenishing so afterwards the hydration rehydration yeah because a lot of times you're not going to meet your hydration needs on a long ride so rehydrating and then even like salty snacks after like pretzels or putting a bit of salt on your food so I think there's a big fear of salt for a lot of people but as an endurance athlete who is sweating and doing long rides often, like it's important to get that sodium, replace the sodium losses in your sweat, especially during long, like when you're on days with a lot of hours on the bike. Mm-hmm. Yes. Love it. Um, okay. So that's, that's sort of our, our on bike stuff. 
Um, oh, and I think the other thing I'll maybe add from a practical standpoint is always have a spare gel or bar or something tucked into your saddlebag or your handlebar bag or your pocket or whatever, because you never know when you take like a wrong turn on a ride or, you know, you get a couple flats or it just takes longer than you anticipated. So always have that like one extra hour's worth of stuff, I think, as your like emergency backup, just from Especially a practical where you standpoint. Live. Right. Yeah. You guys sound like you have some like offshoots. I think I've heard you say that sometimes Peter takes you on rides that are longer than you anticipated. Yeah. I'm a very like, you need to tell me exactly how long we're going. What is the distance? What is our like estimated time? What is our actual estimated time? Now that you've told me your estimated time. Yeah. Uh, it's okay to ask for those specifics, but always plan that if someone, if someone else planned the ride, Assume that it could easily take an hour longer than they tell you. I totally. And if it doesn't, that's great. But if it does, you're going to be real happy that you have those snacks. Absolutely. (laughs) Sure. Amazing. Um, Okay. So the big thing, um, actually, when when we were doing our women's panel uh, last month, and when actually I was talking to Alex Coates about Red S for a panel. A couple, a lot of questions kept coming in from different members of the audience, and they were all asking about basically different fad diets that are, are trending right now. So, you know, among them, intermittent fasting, and I'd say keto were the sort of the two big ones that came up. And actually, as I've been talking to a lot of younger athletes, it's actually rarely the young athletes, but I would say every time I do a talk for a group of young athletes, there's always a parent, like a parent coach who like chimes in to be like, what about keto? I'm like, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think we, we both have the same sort of philosophy of like fad diets really don't have a great place in an athlete's life. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Any thoughts on, on keto or fad diets in general? Yeah. Wherever you want to go with this. Yeah. I think, I think you just made a really great and important point. Um, about a parent versus the athlete, right? Who might be at very different points in their lives with very different goals. Um, and where some of athletes are getting the influence. So maybe it's from uh, going on a group ride with riders who aren't competing at the same level as them, but they're possibly getting influence from there or from social media, which uh, is pretty frightening at times to get nutrition advice from social media because. You know, we have a lot of the Dunning-Kruger effect where you, you learn a little bit of information and your confidence is very big. And a lot of that is also anecdotal, right? So rider X, let's say, is, we'll just say is a master's rider. They're doing long endurance rides. They've tried a keto diet and now they're on social media saying, this works so well for me. I'm riding so much better. I'm never hungry. My energy levels are so steady. Now, that is not the young competitive athlete who's doing O-cups, and those are two very different contexts. So when you talk about ketogenic diets, um, we'll talk about them in the context of performing as a cyclist. And this will differentiate from the person riding three hours a week. So we're talking about a competitive cyclist. Uh, Cycling is a sport that, for competing, requires high carbohydrate intake. And if you're going to train hard, and you're going to race hard, and you want to optimize that hard, then you need to have carbohydrate intake, and you need it to be optimal so that you have good glycogen stores so that you can do repeated hard efforts, not just one 
Um, you know, so you're out on a ride and we're not talking about like a group ride. We're talking about a race. Think about an O-Cup mountain bike race and how it starts. You are sprinting off the line. And what that means is that you're using carbohydrates stored and the ones that you're eating to fuel that, you know, massive output of sprinting that's going to keep on happening throughout that entire race or that entire criterium, which is full of repeated high intensity. And when you do a ketogenic diet, essentially what you're doing is really minimizing your carbohydrate intake. So we don't need to say numbers of what that will be, but and so your glycogen stores are, of course, very low. And you're training your body to use more fat as fuel. And I think the confusion comes when people think, like if you know out there and you're listening, then you, that we, you know, if I'm 130 pounds, I probably have 50,000 calories of stored body fat, right? In the science world, we would love to be able to um, make that accessible at all intensities, right? But so far, because I'm always have hope, that science, you know, who knows? So far, it's not the case. So when you read that, oh, yes, you can increase your ability to use body fat as fuel, like that is true. That's absolutely true. You can do that on a ketogenic diet. The caveat is if you're a bike racer, like we were just talking about, and you're doing that mountain bike O-cup, you won't have the capacity to explode in that race winning move, um, repeatedly sprint. You can try, but your level of your top end, your think about your one minute efforts, your three minute efforts, your, your sprints that you're doing over and over. Um, is going to, you're just not going to be able to reach that top end in the same way. And that's a big deal, right? What you would be able to do is a um, really long bike ride, right? That doesn't have an, a lot of intensity, a lower aerobic level. Um, if you if you could sustain that type of diet, first off, because not everyone can, it's very challenging. But you're, you're really minimizing your ability to do top end. And the other thing that I see a lot of people say is, well, what about if I just eat carbohydrates on the day of the race? So I'm on this like ketogenic diet, I'm just going to eat them on the day of the race. And there's a couple problems. So first of all, this means that you've diminished your training capacity. If you were doing that type of diet, then how were you possibly training your top end really well all the way up to the race? The second thing is you've... Um, You've lowered your gut's ability to absorb uh, and use carbohydrates. So now you might run, in, run into some gastrointestinal problems. And the third one is when you go on a diet like that, you actually downregulate your muscle's ability to use carbohydrates. So there's enzymes in your muscles. And whether you can get that back in one day or three days or two weeks, there's some research on that. It's not 100% clear. But now it's like, well, what if I'm on this ketogenic diet and then I carb load the day before? I'm going to guess you're going to run into some problems there, um, several of which I just mentioned. So it's sort of the worst of both worlds, right? Because then it also takes like a few days to get back into ketogenesis. So, and if you have like races every weekend or, you know, even a couple times a month, you're basically never actually doing the thing. Yeah. So you're I mean, sort of just every level is just not great. <laughs> it is not the diet for a young competitive bike racer um, as of today. And if you want to read, there's some really good research um, 
from the supernova studies with Louise Burke and her group out of Australia. Those are definitely uh, some really good papers to read. And it really explains like why and, you know, the physiology behind it, if you want to dive into it. So it's important to not listen to writer X who is on the ketogenic diet and feeling so amazing, who is doing like a different type of writing than you. And then also you're a young athlete. I mean, you know, we don't need to be restricting and we just need to be eating wholesome food and not trying every fad diet that comes along. It really can, um, you know, you have to ask yourself why as a young athlete, are you, are you dieting? Why are you interested in intermittent fasting? Um, for example, if we jump into that one, if a young athlete came to me saying, I want to intermittent fast, I mean, first of all, what does that mean to you? It's like 10 definitions. Are you not yeah, eating for 24 hours? Are you not eating for 12? Are you not eating until noon? But it would really um, concern me as far as energy deficiency. So if someone was doing that, A, you're now in a restrictive mentality as a young athlete, not a great place to start. Um, and then, you know, we know that low energy availability and some of the symptoms of REDS can occur from not eating uh, your food evenly throughout the day. And so it's not only about um, the caloric intake, but how you spread it out. So to me, intermittent fasting in a young competitive cyclist, like this is not something that we should be focused on. We should be focused on, again, the quality, the quantity, the timing of your nutrition and building a good foundation of nutrition that's going to help give you longevity and health. And those are part of high performance. Mm -hmm. And one thing you said, actually, before we started recording that I absolutely loved is when someone comes to you and wants to, you know, look at one of those fad diets, whether we're talking keto, whether we're talking intermittent fasting, the question you were asking is just like, okay, are you doing everything else right already? Because a lot of people like the intermittent fasting, for example, is that like that, that cherry on top, like you said, it, it is that like extra thing. So if we don't have everything else dialed, it's even more pointless. because. <laughs> yeah. And I would say the intermittent fasting is not the cherry on top in this case, because there's no good data to show that intermittent fasting in an athlete is going to improve your performance. Now mm -hmm. that is different than let's say doing a fasted ride. That's very different. So maybe your morning ride is intense training. And then you don't replenish your glycogen and you do an afternoon ride that's less intense, but it's low glycogen. So you're doing what's called training low. And there are some muscular adaptations that have been shown to occur from doing that, but they've not been shown to improve performance, right? So um, that is something that a lot of athletes do though, but that's very different to intermittent fasting. And someone mm -hmm. wouldn't do that type of fasted ride all the time, right? Because you know that, a, you're going to compromise the quality of the ride. So it probably would be an aerobic ride anyhow, which which would work into that uh, philosophy. But yeah, very different from intermittent fasting. I've not seen any research to date that I'm aware of that it improves athletic performance in any capacity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, every expert I've talked to has said pretty much that exact same thing with intermittent fasting and said like, if you have someone who really, really wants to try it, really like the 12 hour window, like, so we stop eating at like 7 p.m. Like we have our dinner and we're done. But even that doesn't necessarily work when you're talking about potentially like avoiding a red S if we're, you know, if we're training later in the day. So it's 
it's all kind of this this minefield and really again doing the detective work and understanding yourself and how your training schedule works and how your eating schedule works within that um, yeah and most young athletes are probably sleep, sleeping 12 hours anyways <laughs> you know like well it's true yeah like that's <laughs> that was i think it was yeah it was stacy sims who told me that where she was just like i mean the the like way humans should be is like sleeping for you know seven to nine hours and like you know they stop eating a couple hours before bed and so now you have this like you know pretty big chunk of time that we're not eating and that could be our like quote unquote intermittent fast because we're yeah. just letting our bodies you know sleep and we're not eating a pizza at midnight so if we could just you know start with that that's probably that's probably a good good rule of thumb <laughs> Sure. <laughs> um, so red S, so relative energy deficiency in sport, you know, kind of trending topic right now. Um, if people listening want to go back and hear a full hour with um, Alex Coates, who's a researcher who does a lot of work around that, that's over on Ontario Cycling's YouTube. But let's let's touch on it because I think it is a really important thing right now. So red S, what is it? What should we, be, what should we be worried about? What should we be watching for? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So relative energy deficiency in sport. And essentially what it is, is low energy availability. And the best way to think about that is if you picture your whole day's worth of food on a plate, the calories you're going to consume, and then you think about the energy that you're going to expend. So you have one minus the other, what is left over is equal to your energy availability. And that is the energy that you have left over to just say, operate your entire body. Your brain requires energy. Your bones need energy to build your heart, your digestive tract, everything in your body requires energy. And most people have probably heard about like your basal metabolic rate or your resting metabolic rate. And, you know, let's say it's 1600 calories a day. Um, that's what I'm talking about. So that energy left over should at least be your basal metabolic rates. So you should at least have that left over. And then there are, you know, of course, you'd want um, energy availability based on your activity level. So it would be more than that. So what happens is um, you can end up with not enough energy available to run your body when you either restrict your calorie intake or you're expending a lot of energy. And it's not an intentional thing all the time, right? So a cyclist, a lot of us expend a lot of energy. So you might think, oh, I'm eating 2,500 calories a day. Of course, that's, that's great. But there you are burning 4,000, right? So you think about what am I taking in? What am I expending? And now I'm in a deficit to have a healthy body and fuel all of these other needs that my body has. And the problem and what's difficult about calculating something like this is that, you know, there are a lot of problems with tools that we use to calculate. So if you were to just go and use a um, food tracking app, and then you were to look at your Garmin, you know, they're not that accurate. So that makes it problematic. And that's why there are some questionnaires out there that exist, like the LEAF questionnaire um, and other questionnaires that are used more clinically. But this is why it's really important to look for symptoms, right? So your athletes, your coaches, your parents, your friends, um, you need to know how it shows up because the tools for measuring are not that accurate. So what are some things someone with low energy availability and in particular, probably chronic would see show up? 
or some behaviors that you might want to look out for. So of course, if you see an athlete is restricting their food, I mean, that's always a red flag. Uh, perhaps an athlete is chronically having nagging injuries. And that would connect because if you think about it, if you don't have the energy available to repair your muscle, then and even just fuel your exercise, and that could even impact coordination and all of these things that could lead to injuries. So you're having nagging injuries, perhaps you're not sleeping well, you have more gastrointestinal problems, um, your mood seems altered, maybe you're a bit more moody. Um, maybe let's say you see an athlete eating a lot of super high fiber meals, so always having big salads and lots of vegetables, which is great. But the problem with that type of thing is the athlete might say, oh, I'm eating so much, I'm always full. But if they're expending a lot of energy, sometimes those types of foods, they're so filling that they're not allowing the athlete to consume enough actual calories. So things like that, that again, might not be intentional. The athlete might just be trying to eat really healthy food, not realizing that the caloric density isn't there. Um, and then just like inconsistency in performance, um, gosh, there, there's so many aspects, but the thing that is important is that it is really kind of far reaching and spread, but a lot of these things can also be due to other underlying health problems. So mm -hmm. we also can't be so quick to say, oh, you have reds, right? Of course, if there is disordered eating or an eating disorder, that is something that should be addressed as quickly as possible, because then there's the best, best outcomes with that. Um, but again, that's, that takes a teammate or a coach sometimes to have that conversation. And I guess I, I would say have the conversation, right? Because sometimes athletes are afraid to speak out, ashamed, um, you know, they're, they're maybe becoming more uh, reclusive is another sign. So an athlete who's maybe not as social anymore, um, you're not seeing them as much is something else to look out for. Um, and then even if you are not eating throughout the day, so maybe you're having a breakfast and you're not eating till dinner, that can contribute into that low energy availability as well. But those signs are the things to, to start to look out for. Am I always tired? Is my mood changing? Am I inconsistent? Um, am I restricting food? Am I noticing that I don't even want to be social anymore? Why is that? Um, is my mood changing? Am I feeling depressed? Um, is my libido low? So many things that are visual from the outside. And then there are other things that you wouldn't see, but maybe you're getting the stress, stress fractures. That would be another one, right? So your bone health is being compromised because again, you don't have that energy available to repair bones and have proper remodeling, which can also mm -hmm. be um, associated with maybe not enough carbohydrate intake. There's some evidence to suggest that or overall low calorie intake. Oh, so there really are so many aspects to it. Um, I would think some factors that athletes could think about would be energy distribution. So really making sure, again, that we've talked about um, distributing your energy throughout the, the day, um, looking at your fiber intake, right? Is it too high? Not something that most people would think about. And then bone building nutrients, like are you A, eating enough, getting your carbohydrates, and then getting your calcium and minerals that are required for bone building as well. Mm -hmm. and, and stress management as well. So just even uh, psychologically, if you're, if you're very stressed, it's 
been shown that uh, cognitive behavioral therapy can help uh, reduce cortisol levels. So learning to manage your stress as well, which could be part of the big picture. I love that. And you said two things that I want to come back to, or actually there were two things I wanted to come back to. One is something you didn't say. And what didn't really come up is any like rapid weight loss. So I think that's actually super important to mention that like Redus doesn't actually imply that you're losing a ton of weight. In fact, uh, Alex actually was pointing out when we had that talk, you could actually be gaining weight um, and still be suffering from Redus and having all of these adverse side effects. So it is not just like a number on a scale that you can kind of quickly look at and like, you know, eye someone up and be like, you've gotten really skinny, you have Redus. Like that's just, that's not the case. Yeah. And that's a real misconception that if you're lean and um, you look really fit, then there must be something wrong. Um, Of course, you know, there's emaciated, right. And that's different, but absolutely not. And there are some studies to show that athletes who do meet their energy needs actually have better body composition. So in fact, someone struggling with reds could actually appear to have more body fat right? And even if you think about that, you know, if you're fueling properly, that means you have the um, caloric intake and the protein to build muscle, right? But if you're not, it would be easier to lose muscle and a lot more challenging to build muscle. So even there, like body composition wise, but you're absolutely right, you could be any size and have red. So it's Mm -hmm. not, it's not correct to, to point to someone um, who has a certain shape and say, well, they can't have reds, like they're not emaciated and ripped. Not exactly. at all. Just think about if you know anyone who's dieting, eating 1200 calories a day, who might be struggling with their weight and is overweight. Mm-hmm. I exactly. mean, it's, you know, they might not be an athlete, they might be an athlete, but still, like, it's still the same premise and underlying problem of low energy availability. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The second thing you said that I love, um, this is my soapbox moment for the podcast. Uh, a lot of a lot of people when they talk about red ass and a lot of researchers will say for women, it's that they stop getting their period and that's the symptom. And for men, it is the loss of their libido. You mentioned loss of libido. And we're talking about women here. And I think it's just so important to remember that like women's libido is in fact a symptom and that it's not just for men. Absolutely. My God. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know lots of athletes who have no libido and they're in that category and training twice a day and under fueling and could care less about anything along those lines. And that should be a red flag. It's not the only reason, absolutely not the only reason. So again, it's always important to look into other underlying um, problems or concerns uh, with your doctor, but yeah, women have sex drives too. So (laughs) it's not just the men. You heard it here first folks. Yeah. (laughs) I just get so like it's it that is my my hill I'm willing to die on and I also think the the period thing is not a great indicator because there are so many women who are on hormonal birth control or you know or are just not in that phase of life anymore or haven't gotten to that phase of life yet so to call that the only symptom is just ridiculous. Yeah, and especially like a new um like a young athlete when you first get your period it's not consistent, right? So it might take a couple of years to have a consistent period so you don't want to think oh is there something wrong? And then on the other hand, um the withdrawal bleed is a super important thing to mention. So if you are on birth control pill and I'll say this was me 
So even though I didn't start cycling till I was 27, I was on the birth control pill. And so I probably did have um, red S and I just never connected the dots. And again, this is one of those things that I'm in this industry. I didn't connect those dots in 2007 and eight that um, not intentional because I love eating, but I was expending a lot of energy and I was on the birth control pill. So I always had a, a, a bleed, we'll call it, we won't even call it a period. And for anyone listening, essentially when you, when you take that week off um, of the pill, depending what your pill is like, so you have just what's called a withdrawal bleed. So your body will bleed, but that is very different than a natural period. And so it masks this, you might think, oh, I'm fine. Like I'm having a period, like definitely not a problem. So in that case, like it would be worth, if you do wonder if you're struggling with reds or if you're listening to this thinking, oh, okay, well, what do I do now? You can go speak to your sports um, medicine physician and ask like, is there another birth control I could be on um, that might be better because I'm a competitive cyclist and I'm going to be doing this for a long time? That would give me a better picture of my hormonal health. Um, of course, if you're on it for certain reasons, you know, you, you want to have that birth control. But yeah, that's a very important point and definitely worth speaking to a physician about. Yes. Glad we got to touch on that. Um Okay. Amazing. Um, and I mean, let's very quickly, I want to sort of start wrapping this up, but quickly, if someone does suspect they have red ass, like what do we do? Where do you go from there? <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends on the, you know, for some people it can be as simple as, um, you know, maybe working with the sports nutritionist or dietitian and realizing, um, Oh, I actually just need another three, 400 calories a day. And you think that that sounds small, but it's very uh, cumulative right? You think of how many calories that is over the course of a month, you know, that really mm -hmm. adds up. Um, for other people, you might need like a pronged team. So you might need a psychologist, you might need um, a physician, a sports medicine physician who knows what REDS is, and a, a sports nutritionist or dietitian. And so I would say it depends on, you know, how many symptoms you're feeling, I would definitely reach out to um, your sports medicine doctor or, or locate one in, in Ontario. I know Margot Mountjoy works with a lot of athletes, but there are probably um, others in Ontario that are also working with them. But that's important that they know, because I know a lot of GPs uh, don't necessarily know what REDS is. So some may, which is great. And if you know of those, that's fantastic. But um, it's not, I'm assuming this is not taught in medical school. So yeah, depending on the severity of your symptoms. And again, for some people, it might just be a matter of like upping your um, nutrition intake, spreading it out properly throughout the day. And for others, it might be, um, you know, in a clinical setting, what they would do is give you some of these questionnaires. There are several of them that are going to look beyond intake output, because again, a lot of those measuring tools aren't accurate anyhow. So they'll be looking more at behaviors and symptoms, um, and even like psychological, the ways that you're thinking about food, because some people might be struggling with an eating disorder or disordered eating. But it is important to note that REDS is, does not equal an eating disorder or disordered eating, right? Mm -hmm. So you, because remember that it's unintentional for a lot of athletes, it just don't realize the mismatch between the intake and the, and the expenditure. Mm hmm Yes. Yes. I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think that's, that's super important for sure. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Okay. And so the last thing we want to touch on here is 
We have a lot of very busy people who know they should be doing more healthy things, uh, you know, nutrition especially, um, but they barely have time to, you know, ride, exist uh, as it is. So any, any tip, I mean, as a busy woman yourself, you know, young, young kid, thriving business, trying to get on the bike every so often. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Any tips for how busy people can sort of up their nutrition game? Yeah, I mean, I think it's good to have, uh, I'm not going to suggest that everyone start stacking their freezer with 45 meals, because if you're super busy, you might look at me and say, oh, gosh, like, when am I going to do that? But um, I'll say that I bought an Instapot. And I was always like, oh, I I always would look at people and think I'm never going to do this. But I have to say, like, it's super impressive for um, being able to freeze, like I just said, 15 meals, because you literally don't have to look at it. You just throw everything in. So things like that. I think having some go-to meals, um, burrito bowls, maybe where you have the um, like just a base of either quinoa or brown rice or whatever grain you like, and then um, whether you're a vegetarian or not. So if you are, maybe you're adding some rice and beans or edamame or some sort of you know um, nuts or seeds on there in a sauce. Or maybe you're doing like a burrito bowl kind of uh, fajita style. So just chopping up. And what I would suggest when you do that is make enough for like six bowls, right? So that doesn't take that much more time. It's more time consuming to remake that four times than Mm -hmm. it is to make rice for five bowls, Um, even freezing rice in containers. That might sound silly, but instead of making rice from scratch every time, even if you use a rice maker, if you just freeze containers of bases, freeze containers of quinoa and rice and those things that can make the base for anything. Um, and then so whatever you're putting on top is typically easy, right? So if now if you're just grilling chicken or fish or if you're doing uh, beans and vegetables, I would also say freeze like fajita toppings. So if you make fajitas one night, then freeze toppings. And I mean, it, it It sounds like a pain, but it really makes your life so much easier. Um, Having things like rice pudding made for after a ride, right? And so you don't have to freeze them, but if you're going to be training three days in a row and you have enough rice pudding for three days, I mean, that's amazing. Then you can just add, you know, maybe if you add some protein to that or something, a smoothies, huge fan of smoothies for people who are in a rush. I mean, you can get your protein intake up and then of course you can do like, If you need a lot of calories, you can throw some medjool dates in there, some bananas, some peanut butter, and that's like a calorically dense smoothie. It's easy to make a non-calorically dense smoothie, but for a lot of athletes who need those calories. Um, And then, yeah, I like to just think about meals that have leftovers. So I feel for people who won't eat leftovers because I know they exist. Um, but yeah, I know I've, I've had some clients like I can't eat leftovers. I'm like, Oh, that's tough. Um, but definitely thinking about meals and having leftovers. And I know it's hard, right? If you're, I have clients with like three kids and you know, they're going to wipe everything out. Right. So, and that's when I think it is worth like investing that two hours once a week and making a plan, um, with someone in the house that someone gets the two hours you're going to make that food and you're going to freeze it. Um, and then for, I mean, for ride food, it depends if you're, you're buying ride food or you're making it, if you're making it like making these rice bars, like you can make those and then have them ready to go in the fridge for four or five days. Uh, you can be so simple. You can just do bread and jam, 
right? This Mm -hmm. doesn't have to be fancy. I love eating potatoes on the bike and off the bike, right? And that's like such an easy and economical fuel to eat. So if you have potatoes, you can just get a roasted potatoes, put them in a Ziploc with uh, salt, and there's your ride food. Um, but to me, I like to think about bases when I try and simplify, simplify people's eating so that they always think, okay, here are my bases, whether it's going to be um, a whole wheat pasta, some type of grain, and then what's going on top, and then how can I just make the process way more simple? So even having like four bowls in the fridge, you have a bowl of black beans with some lime juice on it. You have a bowl of roasted vegetables. You have a thing of rice. And then you have one more topping is in salsa. I mean, you could just eat that for a couple of days in a row. So it depends, so right? Good. Yeah, it depends how some people are really into cooking. So that's depends what you're like. If you're a simple mm-hmm. eater, I'm a simple eater. So I don't uh, require fancy meals and everything, but. Same yeah. with us. And I think for me, frozen vegetables were like a game changer. Like oh, yes. realizing that that was a really easy option and they're actually frozen at the optimal time in their like nutrition cycles. They're actually like super good. I love frozen vegetables. I totally agree. And game you, changer. You know, I have to say that, uh, so I have a four-year-old now and I bought a lot more frozen food, right? Pierogies. There are some wholesome pierogies out there. Um, so there's another option and we eat a lot of pierogies now. So they have potatoes inside and maybe spinach and really look at the ingredients. They're super simple. They're frozen They're I didn't eat them when I was racing and training, but now I'm like, these are great. Like totally amazing choice. But I agree on the vegetables, like frozen peas, frozen kale is fantastic. And you don't so waste as much food. And that's exactly. a big one, right? We all have the pipe dream where we go. Um, to the market and we buy all of these vegetables with these great intentions and then sometimes you just find them in the bottom drawer or the back of the fridge wilting and that's heartbreaking (laughs) for so many reasons so I I actually eat a lot of frozen vegetables too now for for that reason shepherd's pie is another go-to so good so good Um, and then whenever I make it I make two and it's a little a little time consuming, but then, you know, I just freeze them. But same thing, I put frozen veggies on top. So I just put frozen Mm -hmm. peas, frozen corn. um, And then that's simple. So yeah, I think keeping it simple is, is the way when you're busy. I mean, that's the only way I know I'm not an extravagant uh, cook. If you have the budget, um, of course, you could do some of these meal um, delivery things that occur now. But otherwise, like I stick to the basics of oatmeal, eggs, uh, rice and beans, uh, edamame, like just love those for protein choices. Do you have any Mm -hmm. favorite go-tos? The frozen vegetable and like, honestly, it's so funny, the burrito bowl and the Instant Pot are sort of our thing. And like we get, uh, we actually just get whole chickens now. Okay. We just drop it in the Instant Pot, turn it on. You have this beautiful moist chicken cooked in like 45 minutes. You can't mess it up. Yeah. And then you had like, then, you know, we eat that the one night. And then I use like the scr- like, you know, leftover chicken and I make fajitas the next day or like a burrito bowl or whatever. And then the day after that, I actually use the broth that was made from the chicken because uh, I like leave the bones in and like do another like do another round in the Instant Pot, make a broth, strain it. And then I make a big chicken soup nice. the day after that. Yeah. So just like it, it, you know, it's both like economical and it uses all of like all of it instead of like throwing out half the chicken. Just so good. Absolutely. Yeah, between, between the Instant Pot and the frozen vegetables, 
life is a lot easier. Yeah, and quiche is really easy too. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, so literally just eggs and I throw in like uh, chopped roasted potatoes in mine, but you don't have to. If you want to keep it really simple and not have any other prep, like eggs, maybe some onions or whatever veggies you like, and then you just throw it in the oven and serve it with a side of roasted potatoes. I mean, what an mm-hmm. easy go-to. And I think about when you asked me that question, I kind of thought about camp. Oh, I have to share my favorite like pre-ride uh, race meal I used to have. This is so easy. Literally minute oats and two eggs. And I just mix it in a bowl and I mash a banana in. And that was my pre-race meal forever. And I still have it, like even when I go ride. So it's so mm-hmm. simple, a cup, like around three quarter cups so a cup of oats, two eggs, and then bananas optional. And you cook it like a pancake. And that sits heavy in you in a good way because that's a lot of oatmeal. If you were to cook that cup of oats and eat it, it would feel a lot Huge. more filling. Right. Mm-hmm. So I like that you're actually not cooking it. And then, yeah, it makes for a really sturdy meal. Oh, I love that. And cheap. That's a great like one. economical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm all about the budget. And I think it's something we need to, to think about when thinking about nutrition. Mm-hmm. Oh, amazing. Okay. This has all been solid gold. So before we go, tell everyone how they can get in touch, how they can work with you, work with your, your company, et cetera. Absolutely. So my website's nutrition solutions and guzman.com much easier to just think N S A G dot C A. Oh, I just said com in the beginning. So it's dot C A. Um, and then I have another sports nutritionist who works with me, Brittany. And so we're both uh, working with athletes. And also I have some podcasts that are super educational about um, all things uh, sport and sport nutrition. And then on Twitter, I'm always sharing educational information about training, sports nutrition, and bone health, which I'm super passionate about. Excellent. And we'll have all of that linked in the show notes. If you're watching this on YouTube, it's going to be down on the bottom in the information section. If you're listening to it, head over to ontariocycling.com com and org and it'll all be there (laughs) awesome and thank you so much this was awesome oh thank you so much i appreciate it thank you so much for joining us for this podcast and hopefully we will see you out on the trails or the roads at some point soon have a great day thanks so much for tuning into the consummate athlete podcast if you enjoyed this or any of our past episodes do us a solid and leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our book becoming a consummate athlete over at consummateathlete.com Questions or comments? Find us over on Instagram at consummateathlete, and we will see you next week.